Welcome, friends, to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. I am Matt Bennett. Uh, here before we get started with this episode, just to apologize for not being in your feed for a while. We had some great guests lined up and we had to postpone. We had some holidays over here and we've been doing uh, some really hard work with Optimal HRV. So all of those are my excuses, probably not very good ones, but I'm asking for your forgiveness. Uh, we have lots of plans for a series coming up here the first of the year, some episodes maybe that we can push out in December and some great guests lined up for 2023. So thank you for your patience with us. Uh, promise you will hear uh, more from us. So keep us in your feed. And as always, uh, share that with anybody that might be interested. And now to the show. Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast, where we explore the exciting science behind heart rate variability. The material discussed in this podcast should not be taken as medical advice. Please check with your medical provider to make sure any suggestions or strategies are right for you. Visit us at the OptimalHRV.com website to learn more about the Optimal HRV app, download a free copy of Matt's book, Heart Rate Variability, and also get show notes and additional resources around heart rate variability and its applications. Welcome, friends, to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. We have a great guest today who comes really highly recommended uh, by friend of the show, Dr. Ina Hazan, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners have uh, been through her episodes and really excited to welcome uh, Santiago Brand to the show. Um, we are going to talk about the intersection of neurofeedback and heart rate variability, and I'm really excited for this. Working in the biofeedback field, uh, neurofeedback and biofeedback, not the same thing, uh, but there's a lot of crossover there. And heart rate variability seems to be one of those areas that, that both sides of that equation are interested in. So I'm really excited to learn. Uh, so San Diego, uh, San Diego, please uh, introduce yourself. Uh, and I'd love to hear a little bit about your work. Sounds great. Well, thank you. Thank you, Matt. And first of all, thank you for the invitation. And, and thanks to Dr. Kassan for the invitation as well. Uh, Ina and I have done some work in the past, and we've recently gotten to know each other uh, more profoundly uh, at the professional level. We uh, both had a chance to do a presentation for the Biofeedback Federation of Europe Conference in Italy about two months ago. And it was, uh, I had a lot of fun working with her, and I think we, our works, uh, the work that we do integrates quite nicely. My name is uh, Santiago Brandt, and I am the clinical director of MindLab Applied Neuroscience. I'm based in Singapore, Southeast Asia. I've been living in Singapore for two years now, but I have been in the field uh, for 14 years. I took my first uh, biofeedback and neurofeedback training back in 2008, and I have been working with both modalities ever since. Um, which is quite interesting because you find that people either do biofeedback alone and another percentage of the population will do neurofeedback alone uh, and few of us integrate them. Um, when I first learned about biofeedback and neurofeedback, I got interested in both and I always wanted to integrate them, which is something what I, uh, something that I do in my job. Um, I'm always uh, using high rate variability biofeedback, temperature biofeedback, galvanic scheme conductance biofeedback, EMG biofeedback. 
And I combine that with my work in um, EEG biofeedback or, or neurofeedback, as well as uh, my QEG brain map guided interventions. Um, and I have found that the two modalities combine rather exquisitely and that the results are more profound when you really combine them. Um, it's a mystery to me why you know people would go in either direction and not integrate them because the evidence is there for that. So what what brought you? So obviously heart rate variability being part of this field, but but I kind of wondered uh, what what were you doing before? I think you said like eight, what, fourteen years ago you started. So I'd love to like what what were you doing before, and how how does heart rate variability start to to figure into your thinking um, about just human performance, human health, and wellness? Well, it, we go back to 2003, 2004. Um, I was doing my graduate studies in sports psychology. Right? So I have a graduate degree in sports psychology. And at the time I was working for the Olympic Committee in Colombia, where I'm from in South America. And through my work with, with athletes, I started to get curious about ways to be able to quantify physiological processes and cognitive processes in athlete in athletes I, I my basically what I was thinking is we need to go beyond the traditional sports psychology model where you do visualizing and mental imagery and telling the athlete to set goals and tell them to relax and have positive thinking and all these things I was thinking I kept thinking there's have there had there had there has there has got to be a way to measure this efficiently and make it objective. And I embarked on a search uh, online. And interestingly enough, uh, by happenstance or not, depending on how you like to look at it, um, we had an invited lecture that week. And he happened to lecture on biofeedback and neurofeedback. There was a, it was a lecture from Spain who had been living in Colombia for a very long time and he specialized in that. And he started, you know, it was more of a lecture, it was a workshop, it was a, a two-day workshop and he pulls out the equipment and starts connecting people and making them play with this. And right there and then the light bulb went on. And, you know, I, I thought this is the answer to my prayers. This is this is amazing. This is cool. This is fun. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my career or for, for as long as I do it. Right. And so I spoke with the lecturer and he recommended a few places. I went online and searched for some training. And I found out that the Olympic Committee had a biofeedback unit that they hadn't used for some time. It was oh. collecting dust in, in <laughs> some closet somewhere in some office. When I found out, I said, well, I asked for permission to take it out and dust it and use it. And for the next year or so, I was trying to self-educate myself. I was just playing with the machine. I went online to look for the manual. And I, I would start playing around. It was nothing serious, but I would get some athletes and some colleagues and I was I would I would start testing. And the more I did it, the more I fell in love with it mm -hmm. until I decided that it was time for me to move on. And I resigned my position and moved back to the United States. And I did my first training with uh, back then was the Stents Corporation. And in Florida, I, um, I moved to the Orlando area uh, and the training was in Fort Lauderdale. I had a, an uncle living in Fort Lauderdale. So I stayed with my uncle and I did the biofeedback training, which was five straight days. 
And then the neurofeedback training will watch for four straight days. So I did nine straight days of biofeedback plus neurofeedback. Um, you know, and I think back on it, it was grueling, but it was <laughs> probably the best thing I've ever done because I've, you know, I've never looked back. Yeah. Um, and during the training, I met a psychologist who was reopening her clinic near Orlando. And she initially invited me to go do some practicum. She was using the same system that we were using at the training, um, which was very convenient. It was a, it was a 45 minute drive for me. So I started doing that. And then she said, I like the way you work. Um, why don't you go ahead and work for me? I said, okay. Came back to Colombia, processed my work visa, moved back to the States with my work visa. And then I worked for her for about two years. Um, and it was a tremendous learning experience for me because I was exposed to purely clinical work. It wasn't anything related to peak performance, but I had the chance to work with PTSD, uh, you know, with veterans from as far back as World War II, Vietnam, uh, Afghanistan. Uh, at the time, uh, you know, young soldiers were going to start her, their second or third tour in Afghanistan. Um, I was working with chronic pain. I was working with dementia. I was working with anxiety and depression. I was working with ADHD, um, Asperger's, and some some ASD, um, uh, normal aging, uh, essential tremors. You name it. Whatever whatever came through those doors, I was working with, and that's when I also first got exposed to QEG. Um, the, the clinician, the psychologist had a, a, an EEG amplifier. She started teaching me to collect the EEG. And the more I looked at it, the more I fell in love with that. Can you, can and you two years later, a little bit for the audience? Uh, I'm not sure everybody's familiar sort of with that term in science. Right. So the, the EEG, the QEG is brain mapping or brain scanning. Some people like to call it brain mapping. Some people like to call it brain scanning. But essentially, is you put a cap, um, something that looks like a shower cap on the person, put some gel and then you collect the electrical impulses from the brain. So all those squiggly lines that look yeah. like a seismograph, it's picking up electrical activity from the brain. And that's what we look at. We want to see, because the electrical activity of the brain really provides a ton of information about the person. Yeah. Uh, it would provide information about their memory, their cognitive states, their learning, their sleep, their emotional regulation, their, their impulse control. Essentially, anything that we want to find out about a person, we can read on those squiggles, on those electrical patterns. And that helps us guide yeah. our interventions because we can, with, with very specific accuracy, um, we can pinpoint the regions of the brain that we need to train. And then we start a protocol to help the person, you know, whether it's with their depression or their anxiety or their seizures. Uh, we, we don't cure anything. We don't treat anything. What we're doing is just training and stabilizing brain functioning. And through the stabilizing and the optimizing of brain function, we can help people to feel better. Now, we always work hand in hand with uh, physicians or medical doctors that have that condition within their scope of practice. Yeah. And therefore, we only train the brain, the doctors decide when to titrate medication, when to eliminate medication, when to reduce medication, or when to declare somebody, quote unquote, cured from a specific condition. Fast. But that's what I did for two years. And then I, I resigned, moved back to Colombia and started my own practice, um, which I had for 10 years. Um, and in that practice, I was essentially doing the same work that I was doing in Florida. Um, 
then I got bit by the teaching bug. I did a training with some colleagues in the US and I fell in love with that. And I've been doing teaching and consulting ever since. And I've been privileged enough, lucky enough to have so far to lecture around 15, 16 countries around the world. Um, and now I'm, I'm also moving more into the teaching uh, realm, which is something I really, really enjoy. Very cool. So, so one of the things that that I, I'm dying to ask you with your with that great story of, of how you've progressed with this science is starting out. I, I'm assuming probably with elite athletes, and then moving to areas that I'm a little bit more familiar with from my psychological background, especially like post traumatic uh, stress disorder, autism, uh, sort of the populations I've worked with with my career. Um, what I'd love to just like the, the neurofeedback, biofeedback, just sort of that transition from the, the, the elite athlete population into more I, clinical, maybe is a good word, but, but, uh, more of, uh, folks maybe struggling with a range of mental conditions. Uh, what, what was, what did, what just what was that like? And what was like the difference? Uh, was there different approaches, same approaches? I just, I'm curious of, of what that transition uh, was like. That's a very interesting question. And the transition was rather interesting because your elite athletes and your elite population, you know, special forces people and neurosurgeons and all these people with special skills are not your typical John Jane Doe. Yeah. They, their brains are way different than the rest of us. Um, so the work with them has a specific set of elements. Um, and then you work with the clinical population, which is larger, uh, you know, the population affected by depression, anxiety, uh, post-pandemic mental health now, sleep is much larger. Um, and I found it very rewarding. I was lucky enough to get exposed to that uh, very aggressively because it, and it was it provided a, an excellent learning experience for me. It was the best learning experience possible. Um, now that I'm teaching, I find that my teaching wouldn't be possible or as efficient had it not been for that exposure to the clinical work. Because yeah. when you work with clients, that's where you really learn. Now, interestingly enough, um, four years into my clinical practice in Colombia, I get a call from the um, from the Olympic Committee again, they found out that I had returned to the country and they called me again and they said, well, we are opening the neuroscience lab. We want you to run it. And I told them, okay, so long as I can do it uh, part-time, I'm okay with that because I have my own clinic and I'm not gonna give it up to go work full-time for you guys. Um, they agreed to that. And for the next two and a half years, I helped uh, open the um, uh, and run the neuroscience lab in the Olympic Committee. Um, by then, they had better amplifiers. They uh, they had more um, more money injected from from the government to help grow sports, and it was a much uh, a much better and more more proficient experience for me. And so, at the time, I was I was working part time at the Olympic Committee, and then the rest of the time running my practice and my teaching and my consulting. Um, but interestingly enough, after working so many years with the clinical population, you start seeing that your elite population also presents with clinical elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just don't look at it initially because you think that you know the, the peak performance the elite population has 
their life cut out for them. You know, they're happy, they're rich, they're successful. And in most cases, nothing can be further from the truth. They're just as human as you and I with the same struggles, the same fears, the same dreams. It's just that they can function at a different level. But interestingly, because they can function at a different level, the clinical presentation is also more robust sometimes. They have more pressure. They have sponsors. They have uh, respond, you know, family responsibilities. Mm -hmm. They they have fans. They have results. They have their own goals that they want to set. And when you combine all these things, it can really uh, take a toll on somebody's mental health. Yeah. And you know, thankfully, we've we've seen more athletes like um, such as Naomi um, mm -hmm. Saka, tennis yeah. player. Um, and the female, um, the black gymnast, I forget her name, um, uh, talking about their mental health struggles. And I think that's very important because a lot of expectation and pressure is put in them and people think, well, but you have everything. You're at the top of the world. You're making all this money. How come you're depressed? Well, because they're human. That's why. And the more, the more I work with EEG and brain mapping, the more I study the brain, the more I look at heart rate variability, they look at the, the more I look at how they integrate, the better I can understand people. And I think it's it's been a blessing for me because it's made me more sensitive to how human beings process information and how we struggle and how sensitive and fragile we really are. You know, we're yeah. very fragile to the environment. And so working with this and providing the tools to make people more resilient, it's very, very important. And I and I feel blessed and I feel privileged that I can do that with people everywhere, everywhere I go. Awesome. So so I'm fascinated with, with uh, so again, as, as someone who's very, very early on in learning curve with neurofeedback uh, piece of this, one of the things, uh, a little bit about my journey, and I, I love to like start to pick your brain around this is, you know, I've, I've been a brain nerd uh, ever since I, I really got in looking at the impact of psychological trauma. Um, with the populations I work with, we mentioned post-traumatic stress disorder, um, children, vets, uh, you know, uh, the intimate partner violence, you know, so on, gang violence, so on and so forth. I was a big thing. And I've always been fascinating, you know, as sort of, you know, my graduate work in psychology was late 90s. So sort of in the, it was in the decade of the brain, but we were just it hadn't quite got full force into the graduate school literature at that time. We were just on sort of I was probably the last generation to get a master's degree in psychology without the brain being mentioned in every class. And so when I started to learn about that, you know, and the biological injury of, of trauma and, and, you know, chronic stress, uh, traumatic brain injuries, et cetera, you know, I, I really, you know, I always use the analogy is I didn't have the, the tools, which is why I'm very fascinated with neurofeedback to really measure the impact on the brain or whether my interventions were really helping. I, I always had like a joke that I love to have a functional MRI. Um, then I Googled it one day and realized how much it cost and uh, that it was, was probably not practical for millions and millions of dollars. And the person that had to run it was making six times as much as I was anyway. So, 
you know, and then so heart rate variability, when that came into my consciousness and it started to see this, it was to me, it was like sort of that I could I had that X-ray to some extent to maybe not measure the impact, so to speak, though I could get that a little bit with population norms. But were my interventions helping to heal the nervous system? And maybe I was measuring, uh, you know, ventral vagal, you know, uh, activation, sympathetic, all, all those things and not amygdala prefrontal cortex and, and that. So I'm really fascinated to hear is I sort of saw heart rate variability as the measure I always wanted of the brain uh, probably more practical, easier, definitely easier and cheaper to get. Um, and you bring those together. So I would love to just, if I can maybe ask an uninformed question around this is what, what does heart rate variability add to your understanding? Because you get a level of information that I'm so jealous uh, that I never got. So how's it add supplement to the information uh, that, that you get uh, through the brain mapping? Well, it's very interesting that you ask that because hurry variability is a very powerful yet very underrated tool. Mm -hmm. um, my line of work, both my clients and my colleagues tend to be more interested in neurofeedback because it has to do with brain. And when you're doing neurofeedback training, you have electrodes on somebody's head and you're teaching them to control a movie or drive a car with a brain. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's more of a romantic idea for, for, for the individual. It's more attractive because visually is more, uh, you know, more enticing. Yeah. Um, whereas with heart rate variability, yeah, you're getting some images to go, but it's not as, you know, again, as romantic as the neurofeedback is. Um, recently, I was working with a gentleman with depression, and the first thing I told him is, "We're gonna have, we're gonna learn how to breathe. We're gonna, I'm gonna teach you this wonderful tool called heart rate variability." And he says, "Yeah, well, that's all wonderful, but I'm more interested in brain training." I said, "Well, that's why you're interested in, but I'm the specialist, and this is what we're gonna do: take it or leave it." Um, he says, "Okay, fine." Um, he reluctantly agrees, but you know, nowadays he says that he sees the importance of the breath work that we did mm -hmm. um, and, and how hard reverability has helped him shape his own mental states and how he can better self-regulate, more efficiently self-regulate, and how he's um, specifically helped with his own emotional regulation. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, hard reverability is great because it's cheap. Um, or cheaper than than a neurofeedback amplifier. It's very practical, um, and it provides a lot of useful help. Now, I, I, I have never thought that one modality is superior to the other based on pricing or uh, intervention capabilities. Yeah. I always think that the integration of modalities is the way to go. Yeah. And so high variability is wonderful if you integrate it with neurofeedback or CBT, yeah. or EMDR or brain sporting, whatever intervention you want to use, you, you have a better chance of getting that client through helping them out. And the same applies for neurofeedback. Neurofeedback is a wonderful tool. I love it, but it's not the only answer to things. There's photobiomodulation. And again, if you bring high variability into the equation, you have a more powerful intervention. But 
one of the first things I learned when I was learning the biofeedback was heart rate variability. And <clears throat> during the, the, the stance training, I was one of the volunteers. So the instructor calls me out and connects me and starts me with some baseline recordings. And then he starts training me. And as I'm doing the training, I'm just realizing, good, this is wonderful. I mean, the changes I experienced myself were very powerful. And it was five, it was a five to 10 minute demo. It wasn't even a full hour or a full day. And that got me thinking, well, if in five and 10 minutes I can experience this change in myself, I wonder what I can do for people. And at that point, I started reading more on heart rate variability and learning more on heart rate variability. And it was the first modality that I, that I really started digging really deep into and learning a lot about the physiology, the anatomy, and the application. And the more I used it, the more powerful I found it. Um, then um, when I had the chance to purchase my first uh, brain map amplifier, I said, well, why don't we record the EEG at the same time we have somebody breathing? Awesome. And to get the point across, that's what I do now. So I have many scans of different people with different presentations that I that I record. What I normally do is I record a 10-minute baseline uh, with the EEG, 10 minutes with the eyes open, 10 minutes with the eyes closed at rest. And then I run them through different breathing patterns and frequencies. So I start them at seven breaths per minute, and then I go down, work my way down by half a breath to five breaths per minute. Um, so I do the resonant frequency assessment, which is finding the person's idea of breathing rate. But I want to see what that does to the brain. And it's very fascinating because through collecting brain wave activity, we can find not only what the ideal breathing rate is from the breathing perspective, but also at the brain level. Wow. And so I see that if the person starts going lower and that breathing frequency is not ideal for them, we can see it on the spectral display in the HRV display, right? Yeah. But we can also see it in brain activation. There's an area of the brain called the anterior cingulate, which is located roughly around here. And that's an area of the brain which is very important for many things such as cognitive regulation, cognitive flexibility. Um, um, it's involved in OCD, is involved in fretting, in rumination, in being stubborn and obstinate. And I, when I see people with a lot of activity there, some people respond better at lower breathing frequencies, meaning when they're doing five, five and a half, six breaths per minute, that area of the brain calms down. And as I speed them up to six and a half to seven breaths per minute, that, that region of the brain lights up more. So it becomes more overactive. And that shows me that a lower breathing rate is ideal for them, not only from the physiological cardiovascular perspective, but it also works on the brain. Conversely, some people respond at faster frequencies and lower in the frequencies, more activating for them. Yeah. And this is very important because it draws a correlation and it, with the evidence, the objective evidence, the data and the brainwave activity, you can, you can individualize and personalize not only the assessment, but also the intervention. And this takes us away from the one size fits all approach, which I am completely against. I'm completely against 
trying the same methods on 10 different individuals, hoping that it worked the same way for all of them. It's not realistic. And the data that I've been able to collect um, really shows that. Um, Ina and I are planning to present at the next AAPB in Orlando in May. Awesome. And we are going to present on the same uh, the same workshop that we did in Italy, which is integrating neurofeedback with HRV. But one of the things, the new elements we're going to do if our workshop gets approved is that I'm going to bring down my brain mapping equipment and we're going to record somebody's EEG in real time as she's doing the resonant frequency assessment and then um, how regularly breathing biofeedback. So we're going to be able to show participants live how it impacts the brain. Wow. Well, uh, just for the audience out there, uh, I'll volunteer. So you better sign up now for the conference mm -hmm. to uh, to be me down there. So uh, one of the things that you're talking, you know, well, there, there's an interesting thing going on in, in the trauma world that you may be uh, aware of as well is the with the polyvagal theory and Stephen Porges's work. And I, I love what he's added to our field. I think he takes polyvagal theory helps to simplify a lot of the complexity of the brain, which I've been studying obsessively now for 20 years and probably know maybe 10 or 15% of what I'd like to know um, about uh, the different areas, how they work together. But what, what I was, we're, as a big fan of uh, resonance frequency breathing rate and somebody who practices it 40 minutes a day, pretty much every day of my life now, uh, just because I, what I've felt it's done for me performance-wise, stress management-wise, emotional regulation. It is, uh, I've watched my daily heart rate variability scores double over, over time, partly due to that practice, is I, I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, is RF, my RF frequency breathing rate is mostly based on my genetics, that, that it's not necessarily a environmental thing that, you know, being six, seven, that maybe mine is lower because I'm taller, but like we, we have a genetic RF frequency breathing rate. And what makes total sense with what you said, but I, I just got to say it out loud to, to make sure that uh, how I'm thinking about it's right is that you that there is almost with that breathing rate, there's almost a personal genetically optimal breathing rate to regulate and maximize brain areas as well, which makes total sense. But I think in my world, we're, we're kind of like, there's the, there's the brainstem down folks and then there's the brainstem up folks, which annoys the heck out of me personally, but I, I think I just got in there now too. So so you am I right to say that for that individual, you're finding the the right breathing rate to optimize functioning of certain brain areas, obviously, that are associated with performance regulation, as well as potentially help to regulate things like ADHD and other things as well? Yes, absolutely. Um I, I always think that the combination of nature and nurture is yeah. is the way we need to go. It, it's not one or the other, it's both. Now, your your genetics 
play a very important role. So your, you know, your genotype, phenotype plays an important role in how things play out for you in life as it pertains to your health, uh, both physical and mental. Uh, epigenetics is also very important. Now, epigenetics is basically, genetics is what you inherit. Yeah. Um, or what you may inherit, you know, what, what your mom and dad pass to you, pass on to you, and what is passed on through different generations. Uh, you know, your, your eye color and your, your, your facial features, uh, among other things. Um, and that includes uh, mental conditions and physical conditions. So you could have a genetic predisposition to diabetes or dementia or different conditions, right? And um, just like Chris Hemworth, the, the actor just found out recently that he has a genetic predisposition to dementia, right? Now, it's very important for the audience to understand that the fact you have a predisposition does not mean that you're necessarily going to develop that condition. The fact that your grandparents or your parents had dementia does not mean that you are absolutely with 100% going to get dementia. Um, in my particular case, both uh, my maternal grandparents both died of cancer. Um, on my dad's side of the family, my paternal grandfather died of diabetes and heart complications. My, my paternal grandmother was rather healthy. And she lived to be 98, I think, 98, yeah. So I have uh, a predisposition to diabetes and I have a predisposition to cancer, a very strong one. Now, does it mean that I'm gonna get cancer or diabetes? Not necessarily, I might, but through lifestyle, um, I can reduce that possibility mm -hmm. and live a long and healthy life without ever getting cancer or diabetes, or maybe both. Right. So that means that your lifestyle, your thinking, your, your psychological makeup, whether you exercise or not, your nutrition, and how you handle stress will determine whether you're gonna turn on those genes yeah. and you're gonna develop the condition. Going back to Chris Hemworth, uh, you know, for those of you who are not familiar with him, is the guy who plays Thor in the Marvel Universe movies. Um, he's doing everything right not to get it. He's very fit, very athletic. He exercises, he probably eats very well. And he's in a line of work that requires him to work his memory. He has to memorize lines from the script and shoot long scenes. The fact that he's doing that is a protective factor for him. Yeah. Um, now, I haven't seen the interview, but I've seen some pictures of him. And obviously, he's quite concerned. He's a young, he's a young gentleman. And obviously, he's quite concerned. He has young children. And he's probably thinking what is going to be of his future. But he's doing everything that a human being can possibly do by exercising, lifting weights, staying healthy for his roles, um, eating well, and exercising his memory. I mean, I cannot think of a, of a better job to exercise your memory than acting. Yeah. Know, because he has to get into character. He has to memorize the script. He has to act, uh, you know, get his brain to engage in a certain way so he can perform. And he's been very successful at that. So with that in mind, he's doing the right things and he's minimizing the chances. It's very important to understand that. Now, as it pertains to your question, uh, genetics do play a role in heart rate variability. Um, 
your body composition. You know, you're six, seven, and five, nine plus, so I'm way shorter. But um, we, we both do look like Thor, just for the audience that may not be watching us. We're yeah, kind of Chris's wish. body doubles. I think if we were stuntmen, we could definitely fill in. Oh, wait, maybe, maybe we could get away with that, yeah. Um, but, you know, um, we both exercise. Yeah. Uh, we try to eat very well. Um, so definitely your genetics, you know. Uh, I, I see... When I do brain maps, um, sometimes parents will give, bring their children, uh, you know, kids and teenagers, and I look at the brain patterns and I start seeing there's a very similar behavior in the parents, whether it's aggression, depression, anxiety. And I always suggest to the parents, I want to see your EEG too. Mm -hmm. And I cannot tell you the number of times those EEGs look very similar. They're almost twin EEGs. Fascinating. You know, like father, like son, like mother, like son. So there's definitely a genetic component there, but there's also the environmental component, which is the modeling. It's what yeah. you learn through observation. And if your parents eat well and exercise and, and they have worked on their mental health, it will be reflected on their offspring. Yeah. Um, and therefore it's important to engage the physiology, but it's important to also engage the behavior. And normally when I work with underage clients, which is rare now, because I, I, I now move to prefer to work more with adults, um, uh, I would engage the parents in the, in the work too. And, and one of the reasons I moved to adults is because it's very hard to engage the parents. You know, the parents never think that they're part of the issue or part of the problem, that they don't need to do anything. And they bring the kid to the, to the office in the hopes that the neurofeedback or the biofeedback will help they go back to this toxic and dysfunctional environment. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work like that. You know, with adults, they have the choice whether they want to do it or not. And I prefer that I, I don't want the aggravation anymore. It's just that. Uh, but your, uh, your fitness level, your height, your nutrition, the, the, the part of the world you're born into, your culture, all of those things have a strong influence on your heart rate variability. Now, does that mean that it cannot be transformed positively? No. Because that's one of the most beautiful things that we've, we were endowed with by, by Mother Nature is free will. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we can choose makes a radical, pivotal difference in our lives. And therefore, we can choose to train that heart rate variability to work better. We can choose to change our lifestyle so we can stave off cancer, diabetes, dementia, depression, schizophrenia. Um, the fact that you have the genetic predisposition does not mean that you're going to get it. And the good thing about biofeedback and neurofeedback is you can see your mental states and physical states reflected on a screen. And you can exercise your right or exercise your free will and make those adjustments to feel better. So it's, it's really, it comes down to, to the choice of whether you do it or not. Yeah. So uh, this this may be way in the weeds I and mean, we can pull back very quickly, but this is your thinking like, you know, with RF frequency, like say something I'm just obsessed with in my personal wellness, uh, just been, you know, transformative uh, for me in a very quantitative way that I can measure through RMSSD daily readings with that is, I'm just going to say something. You can say, Matt, you're crazy because I'm a big nerd of epigenetics too, especially again in the trauma world. 
and actually seeing how it could be passed down intergenerationally and then changed over time. And with that parental child, like, are we kind of measuring attachment patterns there? But that, that goes off into left field as well. But are we really in some ways through RF frequency and other biofeedback practices, I, I'm assuming we're probably activating epigenetic expression to strengthen areas of the brain involved in executive functioning, performance, emotional health, and regulation. Are, are we are we at that confidence level to start to make those connections, or am I pushing it a little? Uh, too far with what we know? Anecdotically, I'm going to say yes. Uh, 100% yes. Um, obviously, we need to look at the objective data uh, and the research and published yeah. data. I'm sure there, there is data out there. There are data out there that would, that would show this. Uh, if not, it would, be, it would make for an interesting study. Uh, but I'm sure it influences that. I mean, the fact that you can change your diet alone and you can prevent... Right. Uh, the activation of certain genes that prevent you from developing certain physical ailments uh, would make me think that we're doing the same, even in a more powerful and significant way with the work that we do through high variability biofeedback um, yeah. and neurofeedback. Self-regulation is a very powerful thing. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's something that people take for granted on a daily basis. People don't realize that if you learn to self-regulate, you have at least 50% of the battle one yeah um self-regulation is everything being being able to efficiently manage your emotions particularly when you need it the most it's very very important because every it's very easy to to feel happy when things are going well you know you have a job and financially you're fine your family is going well you feel healthy uh, everything is going well for you it's very easy to feel happy but you know, what if something like a pandemic comes and it threatens your your livelihood and it threatens your your physical health and your mental health and your well-being? You know, uh, you're at high risk for COVID. Um, you know, that's when the skills or uh, the skill of self-regulation counts. That's when you really need to apply. It obviously it it sounds easier said than done all the time. It's it's always easier said than done. Not only it sounds, it's it's it always it's easier said than done. But but that's when you need to apply the skill. Yeah. Okay. You need that's when you need to be more positive to a healthy degree. Uh, not seeing the world through uh, rose-colored glasses. You know, there's nothing I personally hate more than when somebody's down and people tell them, "Oh, they pat them on the shoulder and they go, better times will come." Because you don't know that. Right. No. But. If you if you're somewhat positive, you if you can learn to self-regulate through that rough patch, you're better off and you're more protected. Because that's normally when people come to see us. Right. You know, it's it's when something hard really hits and people did not know how to self-regulate that they come uh, for us uh, to ask for help. I want you to help me sleep better. I, my depression, you know, is is really worrisome because I'm I'm having suicidal thoughts. Um, my anxiety is just destroying my life. My anger is going to destroy my marriage. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I tell them is, okay, you need to you need to learn to self-regulate. And I'm going to introduce this very wonderful tool called heart rate variability. You're going to see, you're going to, you're not going to believe me, but through breath work, you can change so much. Right. 
And people are normally skeptic. They go, but what about the brain? I, I say, yes, we'll get to that. But just trust me, I, I need to guide you through it, but you need to be open-minded. If you cannot be open-minded, then let's not work. Um, you know, and it takes normally two, between one to three sessions of heart rate variability, biofeedback, breathing biofeedback for people to get the idea Yeah, and buy into it. The, the, the tool is really that powerful. Yeah. And what I love about it is that it can integrate to any modality that you use. If you are a CBT, cognitive behavioral therapist, right. you can integrate heart rate variability beautifully into it. If you're an EMDR practitioner working with trauma, heart rate variability is extremely powerful for trauma and PTSD. If you're doing brain spotting, if you do hypnosis, if you do Freudian psychology, whatever intervention you use, you can combine it with heart rate variability to get more powerful results. Yeah. I always tell people that biofeedback um, as the tool uses the technology. So the technology is just really a means to an end. Mm -hmm. And it adapts, it helps for adaptability and creativity. It, it's, it's amazing because you can get very creative when you implement biofeedback, uh, specifically heart rate variability into your practice. You can yeah. get very creative. And what I love about it is that it, it takes away the constraint from being in the office yeah. to have of having to do specific talk therapy in the office. If you have somebody with social phobia, you can take the neurofeedback or biofeedback sensor. All you need is a tablet or a small computer. Mm -hmm. Take them out to the shopping center, to the mall, have them breathe, look at the data and have them work. Yeah. So it really can transcend into the real world, inside of if you will, and it makes the, the intervention that much more powerful. Yeah. And when I train counselors, I do trainings where here in, in Southeast Asia and some in the US where, where I train mental health practitioners to integrate heart rate variability into their practice. I encourage them to use it outside of the office with their clients, yeah. as long as you know the, their scope of practice permits it. But I tell them, you need to expose that client to that fear of heights. You need to teach them to self-regulate by, you know, glancing over the balcony. Um, just do it safely. You need to, yeah. you know, you, you need to get an agoraphobic client to the mall and teach them to, um, to self-regulate. And, you know, they can see it in real time. It, it's very powerful because it provides a visual image of the process inside. That's what I love about biofeedback, uh, that it makes visible what was abstract and not that tangible before yeah i mean it's and that's i think as good for me as the clinician as it is for the client like to yeah. see progress over time and that yeah i am changing how my nervous system works and obviously the neurofeedback on top of that just you know adds uh, so much more data which is powerful i always joke from a therapeutic perspective it's like it's journaling on steroids because we always like to give people, you yeah. got to journal. Like I, I think if somebody came to therapy and their therapist didn't tell them to journal, they'd probably leave right away. But it's like the, the best homework you could give someone. And I, I still think journaling is important. Don't get me wrong, therapists out there. But it's like this really great thing where I'm actually helping them strengthen, regulate outside uh, the the psychological safety bond, therapeutic bond and the work we're doing in session, you know, in a powerful way, I couldn't even imagine 
when I was getting trained, which is just uh, uh, so exciting. So I had to ask you one question on on what you were talking about with um, the emotional regulation piece, because I know you've also worked with uh, high performers as well, that some of those high performers, emotional regulation is just as, if even not more important than the rest of us. But do, do you see the, the same thing? Um, let, let's say you've got somebody dealing with depression or anxiety. Obviously, HRV biofeedback helps to address those, uh, those conditions. And somebody wants to be, hey, I want to, you know, be more, I don't know, relaxed at the free throw line or, you know, more present and more thoughtful in the moment uh, when I'm in surgery or, or whatever it is. Do you, do you see like it just raises the bar for, for those folks as well? Or is your approach any different? Um, if somebody's looking to like boost performance um, versus address maybe some struggles. Right. No, absolutely. It does. Um, and, and your point is very important because I, I see two types of clients, the ones who come with a clear uh, symptom or diagnosis, with, whether it's self-diagnosed through Dr. Google or diagnosed by a proper professional, right? Um, um, they come with that. They say, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I have ADHD, I have epilepsy, whatever it is. But on the other end, uh, here in Singapore, Singapore is a very competitive country. Um, we're fine with financing being at the, the top profession. Um, and therefore I get to see quite a, an important number of corporates. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they call them corporate athletes here. That's, that's a term that goes around in, in Singapore for them, which, which is called corporate athletes. So yeah. I see the corporate athletes and some of them, you know, they're okay. They don't, they don't show signs of anything clinical necessarily. Um, some of them do, but the ones who don't, they, they're really concerned about how to be better. Now, the first thing they have in their mind is how do I overtake my competition? How do I sell more? Yeah. How do I close more deals? How do I earn more for the company? That's always in their mind because that's their nature of their work. They're, they're measured by results. Right. And Singapore being a capitalist country like the U.S. is, well, yeah. you know, if mo- most of it is measuring how much money you bring into right. the corporation. Yeah. That's just the way it is, right? Um, and then they say at the core of that, they always mention, how do I manage my emotions better? Mm-hmm. Um, because again, self-regulation is at the core of anything and everything that you do in life. For corporates, it's very important for closing the sale, uh, you know, getting that negotiation, that merger to be successful, to you know, win more clients for the company, to make more money for the company, to please the boss with uh, with more sales and more you know, more calls or whatever it is that they yeah. need to do. And, and so I find that heart rate variability is, is the first and most important step in that. As the, the, the one thing that I do is that I study the person more carefully. I, I like to go see my clients in action. So sometimes if, if permitted, they invite me to work or I ask them to invite me to work. And I see, I, you know, if they're in a meeting, in a big boardroom meeting, I sit in the back like some somebody's kid who's there to just <laughs> be with that, that bring kid, bring your kid work day uh, kind of situation um or i see them at the cubicle i see them interact with people yeah and based on that i i sort of build a, a bit of a personality profile and i adapt the breathing style to that personality profile 
um, the premise for high variability and reason and frequency is one, and that's global and universal in a way. But I think that breathing can be adapted to the person's uh, personality traits and keep it and can be taught in such a way that it suit that suits them mm. efficiently. Yeah. And that's sort of what I do. I, I think that's very important to get to know the person because not all corporates are the same, even if they're working for the same company, in the same team, with the same level of experience. They have different personality traits. They have different ways of, uh, of looking at self-regulation. Obviously, their struggles are unique and different, and so are their dreams and accomplishments. And one thing that I do is I, I tend to develop a specific breathing style for each one of them, something that they're comfortable with. Um, just like I would do with an athlete. Yeah. Because athletes, athletes are very particular that way. They like to differentiate themselves. And therefore, many of them ask me, okay, how can you teach it so it's unique to me? Mm -hmm. Then I say, well, let's see, let's let's do some recordings. Let's let me watch you um, you know, in the real world. Let's see how you do it, and then we'll work from there. And that can be, the, the beauty is, again, it can be adapted to the setting, it can be adapted for a banker, it could be adapted for a, a, a you know, prosecution to attorney, it could be adapted to the neurosurgeon, it can be adapted to the trader, it can be adapted to the pilot, yeah. to the police officer, and that's the beauty of it. So that's that, that's what I do. I really, um, I'm really big into personalizing and individualizing finding that person's ideal profile and working with it. Very great. Well, I know I've taken up a lot of your time, but, but I got to ask before, before I let you go, what well, one final question here is when, when you, as somebody who's 20 years or so now experience with neurofeedback, biofeedback, more, more in the field at large, where, where do you see us going? You know, I, I, I think technology is so, it's getting more and more affordable. Um, the brain, the neuroscience, epigenetics are becoming very familiar terms now in psychology, way, way more than they were when, when I was trained, never heard of the vagus nerve uh, when I was trained. And now, you know, uh, we're, we're teaching it to outreach workers, everybody around. Just kind of, I wonder if you were like to look in your crystal ball of, you know, where, where do you see neurofeedback, biofeedback sort of, if you agree with me, it's going to get on people's radars more and more because I think their clients are going to want to see technology use. They're going to want to see effectiveness of care. Where, where are some of your thoughts of where uh, we're going to be five to 10 years from now uh, uh, with uh, what you're teaching the world? Well, I appreciate your asking that question because I'm both excited and concerned for the field. Now, excited because, as you mentioned, the technology is, always, is only getting better. Yeah. Um, the, 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 some quality equipment is being developed and provide us with the tools that we need to further understand people. And I think mental health, um, specifically mental health, is going to be more become more important mainstream. Um, because the technology and the, the, the work of people like you and Ina and other wonderful professionals are doing around the world, right? And the, the human element is very important. So we need to continue ensuring that we are certifying 
and training ethical, responsible, uh, intelligent, hardworking professionals who truly understand that this is very that this is not an easy field, that the learning curve is very steep, mm-hmm. and it takes lifelong learning, lots of patience, and lots of time. At the same time, I'm I'm concerned because. Unfortunately, uh, there are people out there developing technology, um, Mickey Mouse equipment, as I like to call it, who they're selling as biofeedback and neurofeedback, right? Yeah. I could mention, but I don't want to start World War III, so let's just stay out of it, right? (laughs) But there's there's companies and individuals out there selling Mickey Mouse equipment that they're um, marketing as. Yeah. Biofeedback and neurofeedback, anything but. And... These same companies and individuals are training people with no background. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know of a specific company who takes anybody from any walk of life and tells them they can train your feedback. Mm. And I've heard horror stories because one of these individuals approached me once and said, you know, I use so-and-so equipment. And I went, okay, this is not good. Yeah. And she was a chemical engineer or something else not related to mental health, took the training, started training somebody, that person had a dissociation um, and felt suicidal during the session, she had to end up calling 911. And she said, I learned my lesson, I'm gonna go back to school, I'm gonna get certified and do things through the proper channels. Because that client could have killed themselves there and that would have been a huge issue. Yeah. And I think we need to be more proactive in the field in protecting ourselves from these individuals. Um, I th- unfortunately think they're there to stay. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people are going to fall prey to mm-hmm. their um, to their marketing. Um, but we need to be more proactive and do more to inform the public. Um, having said that, unfortunately, fortunately, we have very good professionals and companies producing very good equipment. Um, and you said something that's key, which is, is more affordable now. Yeah. Now, it's also important for, for newbies in the field, for people who are interested to coming into the field to understand that it's not cheap. Right. Um, you The equipment is not cheap. It's cheaper, but not too cheap. Uh, if, you have, if you want good quality equipment, you have to pay top dollar. That's just mm-hmm. the way it is. Um, you need mentoring and you have to pay a mentor, you have to take your tests, you have to pay for those. So it adds up. But if you if you do things through the proper channels and you have proper mentoring, down the road is a good investment and you can see the return on the investment. And most importantly, it's a very rewarding profession. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, that's what I love about my work, the, the, the rewarding aspect of it. Um, when I have a client who comes in flunking out of school and they become a straight A student. Yeah. Somebody who's not sleeping well and they say, I can sleep very well now. Somebody who was suicidal and now they're going, I don't even think about it anymore. Uh, those success stories are wonderful. And then when I get, when I have the joy of traveling around the world and teaching other professionals, um, you know, to see them become as excited and as in love as I was 14 years ago with this, um, to me, it doesn't get any better than that. I'm very fortunate that I get to travel and I get paid, and I get paid for it. Um, I've come to a point in my career in which, thankfully, 
you know, my, my work and my education have been paying off and the dedication that I put into this. Um, but you have to stick it up. Um, if you come into the field, welcome, talk to us. We, we're more than happy to help you get started and uh, getting to this wonderful journey. Awesome. Well, what I, I'd say, like I said, I think I could talk to you for another day. I know um, we could talk this about this. Yeah, yeah. So, so I'll just extend the invitation to come back. Uh, there, there's a lot of uh, doors that I'll we open to. that I'd love to explore more, and uh, really excited to do that. I want I want to thank you for your time, your work. Um, I I don't have the influence in AAPB yet to say this workshop has to be accepted, but. I know some people I could yell at it for some reason it's not, but I, <laughs> as I've learned is if Fina's on your proposal, you're in her name. Uh, I would be very upset. So, uh, uh, well, I'm, hopefully I'm it gets accepted to, and we yes. look forward to teaching it. Yeah. I'm looking forward to being in the audience because I, I will not miss that. So, um, if somebody's interested in your work at, at Mind Labs, uh, we'll, we'll put uh, information in show notes for folks. But just if, if somebody, what's, what's a good way to reach out, learn more about you? Well, the easiest way to get in touch with me is through my Instagram, which is NeuroSantiago, um, at NeuroSantiago. That's my Instagram. Uh, you'll see my picture with a EEG helmet, so can't miss it. Uh, Santiago Brand, S-A-N-T-I-A-G-O-B-R-A-N-D is my YouTube channel. I have some videos um, and I'm trying to update the content as much as possible. And if you search for, uh, the website is www.themind-lab.com. Um, just a word of a, a warning, the, the, the website will be revamped. So if you open it, you might not see a lot of information, but through my YouTube channel, Santiago Brand and Neuro Santiago on my Instagram, you can reach up. Great, if you're driving right now, we'll, we'll throw some of those links in the show notes uh, to Santiago. Thanks so much for joining us. Like I said, I'm excited. Uh, come back anytime. I'd love to walk through some of the doors that we opened uh, and do a deeper dive into those. And uh, I'm excited to meet you uh, in person at the conference uh, as, as well. That that will be a, a fun uh, time to shake hands and hopefully uh, learn more from you in, in that workshop too. I look forward to it. Thank you for having me. Thank you.